Welcome to Anti-Aging Unraveled with Dr. Lori Gerber. The body is one of the most complicated systems in the universe. Dr. Gerber and her guests explore integrative medicine and cosmetic dermatology, combining traditional medicine, alternative health practices, new innovations, and technology, which work together to help you look and feel natural and age gracefully. Now, here is your host, Dr. Lori Gerber. Hello, everyone. Good evening from the East Coast again. Uh, This is Dr. Gerber, and I have a part two series tonight um, with one of my favorite people, Dr. Oren Friedman from uh, University of Pennsylvania, and we are talking about necks. Um, It may be the bane of my existence in what I do as a non-surgical practitioner, and I titled this, um, (laughs) Are You Turning Into Your Mother? for a reason. I think that a lot of people look at their parents and start to see their faces kind of going in the wrong direction, but I think primarily we start to see our neck go first, and that is the scariest thing, especially for us uh, little chin, turkey neck kind of people. Um, So that's what I titled it. It's, you know, what are the options for the neck, surgical and non-surgical, and we hope to avoid you turning into your parents because I don't think there's really a reason to any more surgery and non-surgical procedures are not so prohibitive in cost um, that they're not available to, I would say, you know, at least 50 to 60% of the population. Um, So I'm going to give Dr. Freeman a little introduction again for those of you who missed our last podcast, which was on facial reconstructive surgery and non-surgical. You can go back in our podcast on mydrlaurie.com or go over to Voice America and grab that or any of your podcast channels um, for Anti-Aging Unraveled to listen to that. Um, But So I'm going to get through his CV, which is really extensive. So he is an instructor of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery in the Department of Otolaryngology. Um, Sorry, he was at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. That is where he got his start. And I'm going to fast forward to present um, where he's an instructor at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's the associate professor of the clinical otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, um, school of medicine. So let's just say U of P. (laughs) because <laughs> it makes it a lot easier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so his credentials are, they, they're too long to list, guys. So we actually do have his CV attached to my card. So if you ever want to see everything about him, or you can go to the website as well um, for University of Pennsylvania and look him up. But there's no one else I'd rather talk on this topic about. And I said this yesterday to a patient and the day before, um, because I do refer so many people to him about um, with face and neck and because he's just going to give us an honest opinion, right? So that's what we want. We want honesty. We want a great surgeon and we want just refreshing um, perspective. So without further ado, Dr. Friedman, how are you? Thank you so much. Great. What a great introduction. It's so fun (laughs) to be here with you. Thank you. You're welcome. So I guess let's start off really quickly talking a little bit about COVID because I, I know in my practice, I feel like I have had an overwhelming surge through the doors of people that have let themselves go maybe through COVID um, are really overdue for things that are non-invasive. And now all of a sudden are like, what can you do for me? And for a lot of them, they kind of want it now, right? It's, 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 they've waited too long at this point. They're so, they're chomping at the bit and they want to do things now. So what are you seeing the most of in your practice and neck or not neck? What are you seeing the most of in your practice right now? Well, um, Yes, similar to you, COVID has really brought out a lot of patients who are seeking to do things that they had put on the back burner for so long. 
and I'm not sure what the reasoning for it is. Psychologically, they feel like they um, need to. We need to treat ourselves because we really have uh, been sheltered for the past year plus and uh, isolated, and just thinking that, gosh, life is more than just uh, the rat race that we live every day, and they want to take care of themselves. And so we're seeing really a tremendous increase in the number of patients coming in for treatments. And um, then the fact that we were closed for so long um, uh, and people were so hesitant to come in, once the doors opened up, people really started to flow in. So initially it started with uh, really, really uh, heavy on uh, Botox and injectable fillers as patients were just trying to catch up with what uh, maintenance they had left uh, off the table for so long. And um, yet they were looking at themselves on Zoom uh, and other uh, web-based uh, video chats. And so we were all forced to look at ourselves with all the wrinkles and uh, in the upper part of the face and the droopiness in the lower part of the face and the laxity of skin. And so it started early on with uh, the injectable fillers and the Botox and um, uh, then quickly picked up to surgical things. Um, facelifts, neck lifts, uh, rhinoplasties are probably the busiest I think a large part of it is also people wearing masks feel really comfortable healing under the mask. So not only are they now ready to treat themselves after suffering for the past year plus, um, but they're actually able to hide it during the healing process. They're not, you know, we're running around less still at this point. And so it's really the perfect timing for uh, getting their surgical treatments done. Yeah. I, I also think that people are, um, a little bit more courageous. I have to say, I think maybe before, you know, someone would be a little bit hesitant to do a procedure or even to like, for example, um, maybe jumping into threads or a non-invasive lift. They're just much more willing to do so. And maybe it's it, my last podcast last week was all on the psychology of reopening and COVID and what it's really done to our psyche. So maybe that'll answer some of the question if you actually go back and listen to that, because People go one extreme or the other. They can't stand what they're looking at or they become very comfortable with who they are. Um, and, and I do find that um, I'm, I'm having this conversation a lot more um, of, and people are open to the idea of surgery. Um, so, you know, I think that the neck is a problem for me in general in what I do because I have a whole podcast on the aging face. And when the face ages, our bone structure changes, our skin laxity changes, and really, where does most of that end up? <laughs> Below the face, because we lose the jaw, we lose the chin, you know, we lose the cheekbones, our, our eye sockets open wider. So everything ends up going back and down. We have gravity. And for me, there's only so much filler and strings and threads and, and things that we can put in to bring it back up without it looking silly, right? So I think that's where we're going to talk about this critical threshold, right? Where is the line drawn between a neck lift and minimally invasive? So I think first, let's explain the difference between the neck lifts because that's something I don't know a lot about just because I'm not, I'm not a surgeon um, other than my reading that I lost all my notes for today, guys. So we're going to do this off my head. Winging it. Uh, yeah, I know. It's okay. <laughs> Anyone that knows me at this point knows I wing it pretty well. So let's talk about a full neck lift. So when we talk about full neck lift, what are we talking about? Well, neck lift involves an incision that's made right in front of the ear, and then it goes behind the ear to a varying extent, depending on how much excess skin needs to be removed. Um, and the reason that you need to make an incision for that type of procedure 
is that you need to rid the body and the face of that skin. Um, otherwise, it just sags more. And that's really uh, the answer to your question is, you know, wh what's the line, where's the line drawn? And it is when there's a lot of skin that needs to come off uh, or the quality of the skin is lacking in, uh, in elasticity. It doesn't want to spring back to its original position. So if there's too much skin, there's really, there are very few options that'll work as well as something that will remove the skin. And that could come in the form of a neck lift if the skin laxity uh, and loss of elasticity and excess is primarily in the uh, neck and along the jawline. Uh, and it would come in the form of a full facelift if it's also involving the mid facial structures and the cheek area. Okay, so you, a lot of times when you do a full facelift, you're including a neck lift. Definitely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, full so, facelift always includes the neck. Okay. So I, I got that question actually a few days ago and I, and I was trying to explain that there's um, a lot of the times it's, it is beneficial to do it together because of what reason? What's, your, what's the rationale be, behind doing the face and the neck together as a full lift? Well, I think in any intervention, we really want to create um, a natural look and we want to have a harmonious looking face. So you can imagine easily, let's just use the eyes as an example. If we were to rejuvenate the eyes and make them look 20 years younger, but we've left the face looking lax and, uh, and uh, sagging, uh, that's not going to look uh, natural. It's going to look unnatural. Certainly, if we're talking about just getting the neck, but the cheek fat pads are way down here, so you've got flatness on the cheeks and um, the sagging skin on the neck, and then you tighten just the neck and leave the cheeks alone, uh, that's going to look weird. Uh, so if we want it to look natural and like one continuous natural appearing face that blends well from the cheeks to the jawline to the neckline, um, then you just do the full facelift, which sounds scary, but actually um, it's very similar to a neck lift. Uh, it just allows us to address a little bit of a, of a wider area uh, in the cheek area just under the eyes and highlighting the cheekbones basically. Okay, and where did, so I got this question too the other day, and maybe some will come up on Facebook today, but when you're lifting, and, I, and I'm going to do this with my headphones on, guys, and I know how some of you are listening, but when you're lifting up towards the ears and, beh and behind the ear, how is it possible to get under the chin? Like, how can you, because I, I did get that question, because I, did they used to do incisions horizontally underneath the chin? Yes. Okay. So that was the question I had is how are you effectively able to get that to come up by just doing like a, I guess like a vertical or a vertical lateral pull? Right. Well, that's a great question. And it's a technical question because, um, yeah, there are different techniques. And I think that uh, the more techniques we are very intimately familiar with as surgeons, the more we can tailor the operation to the specific needs of the patient. So, um it's true that in the old days, uh, the primary thing would have been to make a large incision, not so large actually, let's say a centimeter or two centimeter incision under the chin uh, in the submental area at the junction of the neck and the chin. Um, and then bind the muscle edges together under the neck through that incision, remove fat, superficial fat from the neck through that incision and then make the separate facelift incisions, which go in front of the ear and then behind the ear and into the back of the hairline in order to uh, tighten the remaining skin there. Um, 
actually, I did a study uh, a number of years ago, maybe five or six years ago, where we looked at um, uh, what are the vector, the ideal vectors of pull of a facelift in order to give the most natural appearance and to affect the greatest change in both the mid face and the jawline and the neckline. And what we found was that doing that old style technique where you make an incision under the chin and then bind the muscles downward. Um, and then at the next step would be tightening upward through the incision in front of the ear. Really logically, that's illogical because it's like a tug of war. You're pulling in one direction downward and the opposite direction you're pulling upward. And really the net is we want everything to defy gravity. We want it to go upward. So we looked at the vertical facelift and leaving uh, the central part of the neck not tied together. So, um, and, and we just lift it upward. And this way we have an unopposed force that's lifting uh, the soft tissues of the neck and the face directly upward, exactly where they came from originally, uh, if not for gravity uh, that pulled it down. Um, and what we do in the neck for the most part is just liposuction to get rid of some of the fat, to free up the skin. And then we're pulling upward in order to get all the soft tissues to fill out the cheeks. And it's really spectacular what that can achieve, not only for the neck, but the jawline and really the cheeks, because the volume in the cheeks is added beautifully during a facelift. Um, neck lift doesn't really provide that, but the facelift does provide that. And that's the difference between the facelift and the neck lift is getting the cheeks more full. And do you, is it using, um, well, we'll go to spaz later. So how long is that recovery? So for a neck lift, what's the downtime look like? So I tell patients that they'll feel um, they're going to want to hibernate at home for the first week, and they're going to have a dressing on their face for much of that first week. Uh, and then during the second week, that's when they can put on a baseball hat, put on sunglasses, and uh, go out shopping, uh, but kind of feel like they want to hide themselves um, from people that they know. And then during the third week is when I think they could start to put makeup on and go out comfortably uh, and even be seen at places where people know them. Uh, and with some makeup, they'll be pretty well covered, certainly by the end of the third week. Okay. So it's not your old school six, eight week recovery time, which, you know, back in the day, I know that was kind of the, the deal. So now we're looking about three weeks-ish. Okay. And... Well, just to say, I don't want to, I, going back to your comment, you know, telling the truth the honest way, I don't want to sell short, you know, yeah. the, uh, the, the recovery. Three weeks is when you're comfortable going out and being seen, but there's still a lot of recovering at that point uh, until everything looks supernatural and great, including the incision lines healing perfectly and things like that. But, um, but yeah, covering that up with makeup, feeling good going out and about, three weeks is a good estimate. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's one of people's biggest fears. It's not necessarily the procedure uh, itself. Maybe it is a little bit, but it's more the scar, right? The incision lines. And I think we, one, we think they're going to recover much faster than they really do. I mean, scars take a good year really to settle down and heal up and flatten out. And I think that's a very important point that people need to understand that we're, you're really not touching a scar for close to a year unless there's something completely um, off about it. They settle down, they flatten out, they're supposed to be raised. I, I think this is all things that people don't understand initially. Um, so I'm glad you did bring that up. And so do you find that the scar itself, and again, I'm kind of comparing it to maybe like 10, 15 years ago, um, that they've gotten smaller, 
and that they are different than they were or that they're similar? Yeah, they, they are different. Um, there was a realization that um, as you lift the whole face, um, and we used to make the incisions up into the temple area for the facelift, and that would inadvertently, uh, it was recognized, lead to loss of some of the hair in the temporal tuft area, the hair right in front of the ear, would potentially be raised, creating what we would call a stigma of previous facelift surgery. In other words, it would be visible that the patient had the facelift surgery because there's now um, non-hair-bearing skin in an area that we would want to see hair. So, um, yeah, we've tailored the incisions. They really heal incredibly well and are almost imperceptible based on where they're located. Um, so we uh, run the incision into the temporal tuft of hair uh, so that then hair can grow through it and hide the incision. And then the incision in front of the ear is literally made at the junction of the cheek and the ear. And that's a very natural anatomical boundary so that uh, it's super well hidden. And then the incision behind the ear goes in the crease where the ear meets the back of the skull. So it's totally invisible, including if a person wanted to wear their hair up in a um, ponytail or something like that. Um, and so uh, the incisions really do heal well and actually quite quickly. I mean, at that three week mark, yes, there'll be a little bit of redness of the incision line, but mostly it's able to be covered with makeup and contour wise, the texture is really nice. Um, so it's it's a quick, uh, it's a pretty quick recovery. And in the case of a scar that maybe didn't heal correctly, just because I got this question the other day as well, um, it's assuming you can get this person to heal appropriately, right? Mm -hmm. Is it a pretty easy fix to recut the scar, resew it, kind of just replace it? Um, I just, I had an example, so of somebody that, you know, it, it was a little bit of a hypertrophic scar, didn't really settle down appropriately, but all of our other scarring looked great. Um, it was just one spot. Is it a pretty easy fix to kind of cut that out and re, reposition it and, re and just maybe sew it a little, a little differently? It, it is easy. I would say it's pretty unusual for that to happen okay. uh, where it needs to be done. But, um, but yes, if it occurs, then that can be easily treated uh, generally in the office um, if it's a small area. Um, there are also other things that we can do, and that's maybe segue into other topics. Yep. Uh, laser resurfacing, uh, we do dermafiling, which is we file down the edges of the skin uh, in order to make them blend in better with the uh, surrounding skin areas. So there are things that are non-surgical that can be done for revising those scars as well. And all the time, all the while, you know, just allowing time to pass will help those scars to heal better as, as well. So, um, you know, we are tailoring it uh, during surgery. We're doing our best to get an excellent um, incisional healing. Uh, and then if there's some things that we can do to expedite that healing process that are non-surgical, injecting steroids into it to help soothe the inflammation if it's a hypertrophic scar, um, doing some laser resurfacing or microneedling to help um, level the, uh, uh, the scar um, and then laser resurfacing ultimately or dermabrasion uh, to help. And then if all that doesn't work and time has passed and it seems like there's an issue, uh, then yes, a simple excision of the scar can easily solve the problem. 
Yeah, I think, and I'm just really bringing that up, guys, just so you understand. It's not really that I, that's not my concern. I get that question a lot, I think, from people that are worried about going to surgery. You know, they're not necessarily worried about not getting the effect that they want. They're more worried about the scar. And I think that if if anybody's had surgery, even not plastics, 95% of scars in areas that don't have a lot of skin tension heal really well. Um, and this is an area that doesn't have a ton of tension. You're not talking about the middle of the back or, you know, the back of the calf or the leg. So, um, yeah, it's just an area that just heals really nicely and cleanly. You just need to give it its time. So let's talk about a mini lift, a mini neck lift. I've got, I actually got a, probably, I'm going to say about five or six questions in the last two weeks about mini neck lifts. And I don't know why all of a sudden, because it really doesn't come up all that often, um, where someone asks me surgical questions, but, I did get a fair amount of mini neck lift questions. So when I started reading about mini neck lifts and getting more detail, um, I started realizing where the critical threshold is between a mini and a full. So I just want your opinion on one, how do you do a mini neck lift, I guess, and two is what, who's a good candidate for that, right? Where would you say, all right, you're good for this and then you're not good for this? Yeah. Well, I, th I think that there's this continuum um, and a younger patient who's got skin that just snaps back, it's an easy test for the home viewers or listeners to do. Just pull on the skin, snap it back and see what happens. If it snaps back pretty uh, briskly, then you're a great candidate for a lot of minimally invasive techniques. For example, um, simple liposuction could do incredible work. Um, and liposuction means just a tiny pencil, tip of a pencil size uh, poke of a needle into the um, chin uh, and maybe behind the ear, depending on the extent that needs to be achieved. And then just with some back and forth uh, motions, uh, you put the cannula in and uh, pull out some of the fat. And for those listeners and viewers who've got um, good snap back of the skin, uh, if we do liposuction in patients like that, the skin is just going to tighten up and snap back, and it'll be like a facelift, literally, uh, for the neck. There are other um, techniques. Radiofrequency can be done, which is basically heating up those areas under the skin in order to cause loss of some of the fat, and also collagen rebuilding and tightening of the skin. So skin tightening techniques and they've got newer ones that don't even involve any kind of incision um, that can be done uh, through the skin. And they may not be as effective as the good old fashioned liposuction, um, but for patients who really want no invasive, nothing invasive, and they want the surgeon next door, or the <laughs> surgeon doesn't even have to be in the room when that happens, or the doctor um, doesn't have to be in the room. But, um, you know, so it's a continuum. So liposuction is the, I would say the most basic for patients who are younger and has have good lax, uh, elasticity or snapback of the skin. And then um, moving along that continuum, you, know, you can combine that liposuction of the neck with just a small incision to remove some skin or not even an, an incision to remove skin, but to uh, lift up the heaviness and the weightiness of a really heavy neck. So there are devices now that can be passed down, like you mentioned one, which is a thread lift, and you can speak more to it. Uh, but um, there's another device that allows you to pass a suture. Uh, I usually like to use Gore-Tex in that case, which is a permanent suture. 
to the heavy neck, skin, neck uh, tissues, separate the skin from it with a small uh, undermining or with liposuction, and then uh, pass this stitch that can grab some of the heavy neck skin and pull it up. Um, and for a heavy neck, that could be a nice mini neck lift without really uh, excision of skin. Um, and then you go to those procedures that we talked about where as you get older, um, if there is laxity of the neck skin and you want to get some of that skin out, it can also be done in a mini uh, fashion, utilizing those um, thread lifts or other type of uh, um, devices that allow you through a small incision to pass a stitch and pull up on the neck tissues and then suture it up into a couple of places, one in front of the ear in the hair, hair bearing skin and one behind the ear to get that pull um, and then just redrape the skin with a little bit of a skin incision, excision right under uh, the ear. Um, so those are really nice techniques for patients who want uh, more minimally invasive. Of course, there's the injectable also, even before you get to that, of uh, uh, Kybella. Um, you could speak more to that. It's not my favorite. Uh, you know, as a surgeon, I like to do things that are more definitive and single use, but there's some, or single intervention as opposed to Kybella, which in my experience, uh, you have to repeat it a number of times. Um, but there are patients who certainly want that, and I'll let you talk to that. Patients who want to have nothing done interventionally other than injections. Uh, and in that case, take it away, Dr. Lori. <laughs> so I, I, I like the, the mini lift conversation because it, first of all, I didn't, I actually didn't really think of doing an incision in front of the ear and doing a mini lift that way, plus the, the lipo um, with, or, or with the um, stitch, actually. So that, to me, it's kind of a, a, a blend of a full neck lift and a mini. Um, so with liposuction, and I, I agree with you, Kybella can be a little bit fickle. Um, Kybella is a fat dissolver, so it will give you some definition under the chin, um, along the jowl. Um, I do find it really, really nice. Um, without using big words, guys, for that little fat pad kind of on the side of the chin underneath the mouth for, again, mostly smaller chinned individuals. Um, I love Kybella for someone that has a mild to moderate amount of what I call girth or heaviness there. And in the beginning, we used to really say three sessions, um, two to three vials. If you flood it with this solution, that's really just gallbladder acid, guys, and it just dissolves the fat, which is, I wish I came up with. It's kind of novel and amazing. Um, but it's an acid, right? So there is some downside to it. It hurts. It burns. It feels a little bit like a toothache. Um, so it can be slightly uncomfortable. It's about a week of downtime with some swelling. And I find that in the beginning, I really needed three full sessions. I think now we've really altered the way we do it. And I probably can get away with one or two for most people. Um, and it's, we've actually, we used to not flood it with as much, um, deoxycholic acid or Kybella as we do now. So I actually really like Kybella. Um, I do find that it's a little hard to sculpt. Like if I were a surgeon, I think it'd be a little bit easier to sculpt that um, liposuction and how exactly you want the chin to contour because um, you are flooding an area. So I find that I'm putting certain amounts of CCs in each spot and really trying to minimize certain areas and maximize certain areas. Um, so that's how I sculpt with it. And then I agree with you. If someone has really good elastic tissue and they have a good snap back to their skin, um, I would say for the most part, their skin recoil will do it by itself, right? You, you lose the fat and yes, you're going to have some loose skin for maybe 
six months or so, um, just like losing weight. And most of that will go back to a nice straight contour. Um, for those that don't have good recoil, I, I love, and I used to be a big CO2 Fraxel fan and I'll go to that in a minute, but, um, I love radio frequency with microneedling. Um, it's, it's a technology that I think is, um, very novel. And what I'm going to explain, I'm going to try to do it really easily is that we used to try to push heat through the skin. So we would take the edge of the skin and we try to get the inside of the skin, the lower levels that make collagen up to a certain temperature, because that temperature makes, when we stimulate, it makes collagen and it tightens. Now we put this needler device, which stamps the skin. So we get some collagen and resurfacing and all these good things with the needling, which most of us know. And we deliver radio frequency right at the bottom of the needle when you're in that layer of skin that makes collagen. So for me, we call it fibroblast activity. That new collagen is so much stronger and there's not, there's hardly any downtime. We're not superheating the skin. We're not burning the skin. And the new smart machines actually can test the drag through the skin so it knows exactly when you're in that layer. To me, that's pretty, it's pretty cool. Um, I see, I actually call that machine my low face machine. Yes, it works around the eyes. Yes, it works around the mouth, fine lines, wrinkles, but it does a really, really nice job on neck and jaw um, and chin. So for my people that maybe need a little bit extra tightening, I actually skip over most of my other modalities and go right to radio frequency with microneedling these days. Um, and I think it can be combined with the facelift techniques yeah. that you're talking about. So that we were talking about. So in other words, uh, the combination of the two before, but also after a facelift surgery um, uh, is really, really nice. So afterwards, if you want to get a little more tightening with the swelling after the, uh, facelift surgery. Sometimes there's some laxity that occurs on the undersurface of the neck uh, once all the healing is complete. Uh, so doing some small procedure, like you're saying, radio frequency uh, microneedling combination is really nice. And how, how long do you suggest waiting before you um, do any procedure actually, for that matter, um, on the neck? I mean, I, I would say six months because uh, you do, as you said correctly, and I totally agree with, you know, you're going to get continued um, readherence of the skin as you lose. It's amazing how long it takes actually the body uh, to recover from a, from a wound. Uh, I mean, we talk about six months to a year easily, and it's, it's actually visible. So you can see the fluid just dissipates, whether it be the eyelids or the nose or the, or the neck. Um, it, you can watch as the fluid dissipates and so the tissues become less rigid as the fluid uh, uh, goes away from the area that's been affected by the trauma. Uh, the neck, you know, you might have early on as tight as we get the neck, which we want to get it tight, natural looking, but very tight so that um, it can uh, hold uh, for the long term and look, uh, look natural for the long term. Um, but early on, you'll get a little fullness here that over the course of six months, sometimes even longer, then it'll start to come up and tighten up. And um, yeah, so I, I would say I would not even entertain the thought of uh, doing something for six months. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, because I get that question too. It's like, all right, you know, I had this done and how do I either keep my results being good, right? You know, how do I preserve this lift for longer than maybe the 10 years that we like to say or whatever the number is. Uh, um, 
it's 10 years approximately, right? You give or take. Is that what you usually tell people? Well, in general, I'll say yes, but, and this might give you, uh, but I, but this will talk, we could talk about the SMAS now. Yeah, and, um, so, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you. F- Go for it. You- okay. Do so, that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what I would say is it, it takes at least 10 years off of someone's uh, age, you know, stated age appearance um, easily. I mean, I would say 10 to 20 years, actually. And it's not that the uh, it's not that uh, 10 years from now, it all goes away back as if you had never had anything done. Um, but the aging process obviously continues. And so as the aging process continues, you're going to start over. Uh, from 10 to 20 years ago and and start the aging process. But as you said also, and so the thing that helps us to give it actually a permanent result is using the SMAS. And that's actually also tie in, in this way we can also tie in the discussion about scars and kind of review that as well. So by having all of the tension of the facelift go to the SMAS, which is the deeper layer so not the skin, but under the skin is the SMAS, which is this uh, sheath of tissue that is very, very strong and that um, encloses or uh, surrounds, uh, like saran wrap, the muscles of the face and the muscles of the neck and the muscles of the forehead for that matter. And so if we could apply pressure and tension on those layers, the SMAS layer, the superficial musculoapineurotic system is what SMAS stands for. So if we could actually pull the muscles up to where they were 10 and 20 years ago, um, then we can take skin out and just redrape the skin without any tension whatsoever on the skin. And that's what really helps us to avoid scars um, that used to be a stigma of facelift many years ago. So before the SMAS was the primary uh, tension vector or tension holder uh, of the tissues of the face and neck during a facelift, uh, before that time, uh, the skin scars would have a tendency to maybe uh, be more noticeable, more visible, to lose hair because tension on the skin is not a good thing. But today, there's hardly any tension whatsoever on the skin, which is what makes everything look so natural and allows us to really pull on this tightly, on the SMAS tightly, to get a nice natural look that avoids the skin scar and that allows this result to really last, and I'm gonna say this honestly, forever. Because you remove a portion of the SMAS and it doesn't grow back, it just, it holds everything where it was. What's gonna happen is your skin is gonna thin over time. Mm -hmm. And so that's where these skin treatments become tremendously powerful because the underlying tissue is now taken care of. It's tight. And what we want to do is maintain the collagen and tightness of the skin, whether through microneedling or through radiofrequency or through other minimally invasive techniques uh, that allow us to keep that skin thicker and healthier. Even just applying topical things like Retin-A cream can help to give that skin a nice thickness uh, that'll keep it looking young uh, after we've lifted all that, all that um, underlying SMAS tissue. Yeah, so I think, and for those of you that didn't listen to our first talk, that's the biggest, to me, the biggest difference in the old windswept kind of um, triangle face, if you will, um, technique versus now is we're able to literally, 
if you think about it, the skin's almost a separate part of this whole procedure, right? You're taking the muscles, you're you're pulling everything up to the smas, and then you're you like I love your wording, you drape the skin over it because that's really what you're doing. It's not under these massive tension lines anymore. You're not pulling from the skin level. Um, so I tell people all the time, you spend more time with yourself at home than you do with me. So why are we not doing things at home that are going to stimulate collagen production as well? And so to that point, um, since you brought it up, I think at least one laser a year and you can take your pick. I mean, you can do CO2, minimally invasive CO2s, which are like a, a, we call it a fraxel, um, but it's a fraxel restore. Um, there's lots of brands like that on the market, but it's really just not fully ablative. Your skin is pink, but not burnt. Um, radio frequency, microneedling, or even um, doing um, the, the smooth threads, which there's a lot of talk now on smooth threads and the the biopsies are coming back on collagen production and stimulation are, are massive. So um, we have these smooth threads and in the United States, we use a lot of PDO. Um, PLLA is used a lot as well. And, and there's a couple of different chemicals that are used, but the short version is, is they're very fine. They can be threaded in underneath the skin. And what that does, and in my words, is it kind of creates a canopy or a structure underneath that your body keeps putting collagen over top of to help that integrity. So it doesn't always have to be about pulling. Um, it can be about just stimulating collagen with those. Um, I'm a big fan of growth factor creams. I don't know how you feel about them. I know some people are on the fence about them. I love peptide and growth factor creams. I think they work really well for collagen stimulation. Um, I know the data does support them very well, much better than oral collagen powders, which I get questions every day on. So guys, you can take your collagen powder. I just don't know. I don't really know if it's doing much for you, right? You know, other than bone and joint maybe. Um, so I love smooth threads. I underutilized them. I think I undervalued them. And for my patients that might have one, either are trying to avoid surgery in the neck. Um, my first go-to is Kybella if there's a fat pad there. And in all honesty, either the radio frequency with microneedling or smooth smooth threads. I have been getting amazing results with them. I, it's it's like the size of your hair. So anybody watching, it literally they're they're tiny. They're they look like they should be super insignificant. Um, but if we think about how well they hold our skin together when we sew our skin together. Just think about what happens when they're deposited under the skin and the activity of your cells just migrating to that area and trying to produce new tissue. And that's really what happens. So that's kind of my new favorite. And then, of course, I think we're missing the Botox talk. But um, the muscles in the neck, that was going to be my next question. For someone that's really muscular on their neck, when you do a neck lift, do you continue them on a Botox regimen after their lift? Um, on their the, neck, like for yeah. the bands, for the banding. Right, right. for the platysmal bands. Yeah. Um, platysmal bands are a challenge even today. Yeah. Uh, sometimes uh, in the facelift we'll transect portions of them, which works okay. really well. Um, I actually think that the way we pull them to the sides uh, really handles them pretty nicely. Okay. Um, again, sometimes a little slit in them. But, yes, if they have return of any of those platysmal bands, which – can happen certainly after a facelift because we're not destroying the muscle. We're just repositioning it. Um, but if they have, they do develop a recurrence of those bands, we can easily continue with the Botox for sure. 
Okay. I mean, I, I love Botox for necklace lines, we call them, or horizontal lines. I like them for platysmal banding. Um, the downside is you got to keep up with it, right? right. So everyone says to me, oh, well, you know, and my big thing is cost to benefit ratio, right? It's If you're upwards of several thousand dollars a year, how many years is it going to take you before you just go and get a neck lift, right? So, and then I, I'd be more than happy to maintain them because they'll be much happier. And to me, there's okay. a synergy there, right? You know, you you have a nice, happy neck lift. And now I can do your radio frequency microneedling. I can do your CO2s. I can throw threads um, or, or Botox. So um, do you find, so with liposuction, going back to the chin, and this is a, a side note, do you find that people put fat back somewhere else with that small amount of fat that you're removing in the chin? Because you know that with the body, it's such a large volume. Your body kind of thinks, let me find a place to put this. Interesting. Um, so you're asking, is if, there because we remove it, yeah. do, does it go, does it find another place to deposit those, uh, that fatty tissue? Yeah. I always wondered that with face. Yeah, it's a good, I, it's a good question. Um, certainly not the, it would not be noticeable the amount yeah. if that were to happen, but I don't think that that happens. Yeah. Um, I know it doesn't happen with Kybella because it's so slow, right. but I imagine it doesn't. Yeah, it's a it's a tiny amount, but that's I did I did get that question a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so guys, I think the biggest thing to take out of this too is SMAS. When I first came out and started learning about plastics, and obviously I'm not a plastic surgeon, but the whole SMAS concept is very very interesting, and I think it'll put you at ease once you start understanding that system, because it really. It's, it, it really did revolutionize plastic surgery, right? I mean, that was a whole paradigm oh, yeah. shift. Oh, yeah, no question about it. And, and in recent years, even I'm saying in the past five years, yeah. um, there have been uh, extensions of that, taking advantage of that continuation of the SMAS all the way down to the lower part of the neck so that now the results in the neck are so far superior today compared to what they were five and 10 years ago, let's say certainly 10 years ago, um, so much better today than they were 10 years ago. It's not even, not even funny. I mean, facelift, I love the operation now. Uh, 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, I was like, yeah, you know, but it, yeah, it looks, it doesn't always look natural and sometimes falls down. But the way it's done now, the way I do it now, it's just such a, a rewarding operation. Patients are so happy with it. It's so natural looking. Um, and it's like I compare it to if for those listeners old enough to remember um, the perms and uh, the commercials for PERT, uh, you know, it was like you get up and go. You just shake your head and you, and you don't have to fuss with it. You know, that's what's beautiful about today's facelift. It's actually, though it sounds funny, it's actually a natural, the most natural way to go because you just get it done the one time, everything is repositioned back to what it was 20 years ago in terms of youthful look. It looks supernatural and you don't need to fuss with it. You don't need to do too much. You know, it doesn't mean that people are not going to maintain it as we're talking about with skincare and with Botox because obviously if you're tending to these things, and you're concerned about it, we want to, we want to do the best we can do for ourselves. So yeah, we're going to maintain it with Botox, with uh, even fillers here and there, um, with skincare treatments, but
but it's such a natural way to go and just not have to think or worry about it anymore. Um, it, it's such a revolutionary thing, as you said it correctly. So I just got a question from somebody and it is from Facebook. So she wants to know about chin implants, actually. So let's touch, I mean, if, if, if you're prepared, let's touch a little on chin implants and how they, when one, how they work, two, what they're made of, um, I think in three, how they can improve, well, a neck and a jawline really, right? So um, she's asking about, um, and she, her question was, how long do chin implants last? But I think there's probably a broader question there. So. Yeah. So it's a great question. Uh, they definitely, it's the right, uh, this is the right setting to be asking about a chin implant because you can imagine if you think about or look in the mirror th and look at your own chin and neck relationship, uh, the more forward the chin extends and the more stretch we put on the chin and the jawline, uh, the, more the more of the horizontal part of the neck will be visible as compared to the vertical or the hammocking region of the neck. So if we pull the chin forward, um, we're going to accentuate the angulation of the chin and the neckline, and that will help to enhance a person's appearance. So definitely, um, this is the right place to discuss that. Uh, the types of implants that I would use, so from least invasive to most invasive. So the least invasive, I love fat transfer. So taking fat from the belly and putting it, or the thighs, and putting it into the chin area to, um, to contour the chin and the jawline is a beautiful operation, beautiful procedure. That's something that can actually be done in the office um, or in the operating room. It's a little more comfortable in the operating room, but can be done in the office. And we take the fat out, we process it to remove the fluids from it, and we just try to inject as much pure fat as we can and fat, as we all know, has stem cells in it, and then it takes on a life of its own. So we can take fat out of the neck because we don't like this fat here, but we want to put fat in the jaw to highlight it and accentuate it and push it forward a bit. Um, the next thing that I would use is either uh, soft tissue or cartilage. So um, if we're doing another operation, we might put cartilage or soft tissue or cartilage wrapped in soft tissue uh, into the chin to accentuate it, to bring it forward more or to pull it out a little bit more. Uh, again, to put more uh, tension on it uh, and expand the horizontal portion of the neck. Uh, and then the next more aggressive chin implants, and that's all by the way done with incisions on the inside of the mouth. So there are no incisions externally. Uh, and then the other, uh, the next up would be something, I like to use Gore-Tex as a chin implant. That's the name of a material just like Gore-Tex that you would have in your winter coat. It's actually the same material. Um, it looks different and it's sterile, of course, but that too is placed through an incision on the inside of the mouth and it's placed along the jawline uh, at the chin and it can be different shape depending on the needs of the patient. If we need just anterior projection or forward projection, then we get one that's relatively small. If we wanna get some widening of the chin, give a stronger jawline, uh, then it can extend all the way out um, laterally. Uh, and then the, probably the most common one that's been used over the years, and this is what I'll end with on the chin part, um, is silicone. And uh, But there are some downsides to silicone in that it can reabsorb some of your own bone over time. It can also grow a capsule around it, which makes it mobile after 10 or 20 years. 
So I've actually spent a lot of time removing chin implants that were placed before I ever went into practice. So they were placed by surgeons when silicone chin implants were really popular. Uh, and I've removed them for many years because they become mobile or they're, they've eroded some of the bone. And I like to use the other materials that I've talked about because they're more natural feeling and looking. They have fewer complications. They integrate into the body better. And um, so th those are my thoughts on chin implants. Okay. Uh, um, so, and my version of a chin implant, guys, <laughs> is um, filler. So I do a lot of jawline filler, a lot of chin filler. And the question that I always get is how much filler um, it's a hard question. I would say not a little bit of filler. That's probably the short answer. It's not usually, you know, half of a syringe of Aluma or half of a radius. It's generally speaking one to two syringes. We're talking about a decent amount of volume uh, to give you, again, that forward projection or, or even lateral projection or, or angulation of the jawline. So um, for me, filler lasts about a year and a half. I find that the less mobile areas last a little longer than your cheeks um, per se. I don't know if you find that, but I just find that nose, chin, jawline, they just last longer than the other areas. Yeah. And it's a really nice way to see if you want a chin implant too. I mean, yes, obviously it's a great way to enhance your look in general. And if you can keep up with something like that every year, it's not a horrible investment. But just like to me, non-surgical nose jobs, it gives you an idea if you're going to like it, if it's something that you want to do. Um, and I think that's part of how this works together as well. Um, but I do love doing chin. I think, again, I'm, I'm blessed with a tiny one. So um, mm -hmm. that is the bane of my existence. So I work at that ad nauseum. And I actually, I do like a lot of filler there. Um, and, and I do think that taking the fat out below the chin line, whether it be with lipo, with kybella, um, accentuates the smaller chins in general so well that sometimes you don't even need a chin implant and people think they do. Um, especially when you're young in the younger years, like our social media aged kids. So um, for whatever reason, jawlines and shins right now are super, super big with all the uh, selfies and the tech neck and the looking in Zoom. Um, I get a lot of chin and jawline requests right now. So I think that's, that's a really good topic. Um, we have about three to four minutes, I think. So um, yeah, I think four minutes. So I think... I will close a little bit. I just want to talk about threads that pull because I really didn't go into that. Do you do you use a lot of cog threads? Not really. No? Not really. Because okay. yeah. you got the you got this needle and thread and you can right. get in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have the benefit of looking inside, so I will say that lately, um, over the last year and a half, I've really become um, more of a thread connoisseur, and I do find that if someone has that not too thin, not too thick. It's all, almost like a perfect patient that I can get a really nice um, neck lift coming from the jawline or even a little bit um, under the jawline. Again, pulling very similarly to a facelift um, and getting a really nice neck lift. I do, again, like to do Kybella first if I have to, just to get that to loosen up a little bit so I have room or even Botox on the platysmal bands. But I do love the newer cog threads. I feel like they're a lot um, they dissolve a lot cleaner. They're not as thick as they used to be, and they hold better, so you don't have to go with these massive, thicker threads, so you don't mm -hmm. feel the pokes and the points and the edges. Um, so I, I do find that I'm using them a whole lot more. I use them on the body and the belly. Um, I haven't gotten into breast or butt yet, but I do like belly, and um, I, I, I'm, like, loving neck and jawline and chin lately. So um, from a perspective of surgery, 
is there any reason that we can't use them in conjunction? As long no, as I don't think so. Months out, you know. No, in, in fact, we do use, as you said, you know, we do use thread lifting or barbed sutures uh, at times during the facelift. Just It just holds well, and uh, okay. it's the same concept, but it's, you know, done under, under direct vision. So. Okay. So I think what I'll do for you guys, too, is if Dr. Freeman is, is okay with this, we can get some before and afters. We can pop them up on um, some of our pages so that we can have some good before and afters of neck lifts. Um, I did get a question about radio frequency with microneedling. How many times does it take? So I'm going to really quickly field that one. Um, RF with microneedling takes about three sessions to see. One session, you're going to see a difference. Without a, I mean, I'm, I'm a kind of a big believer at this point. But three sessions to really get a significant amount of tightening and pull. So for me, it's um, I always say commit to three. And then maybe one every year, year and a half, just to kind of keep the skin and gravity kind of going in the right direction. Um, so price point wise, at least in my office, we're looking at around, and I'm pretty reasonably priced, we're looking around $850 for a face and a neck combined. Um, I would say in most of the marketplaces, probably around $1,100. And we do package three for $22. So um, for Jessica, there you go. So I love radio frequency microneedling. I love combining it with the smooth threads. Um, what else can I do here? Let's see. Any other questions? Mini lift, just recovery. How long for the mini? That was the only question I didn't get to. Uh, it's uh, quicker. I would say two, as opposed to three weeks for the full, two weeks for the mini. Two weeks for the mini? Yeah, a oh, lot okay. less swelling. Yeah. Okay. And you really are reserving that for your younger patient with a little more elasticity. Yeah, or or volume. Yeah, or an older patient who may have had something done before okay. and doesn't need as much. Yeah. Okay, so if you don't want to go back in to a something that maybe, you know, had a lot of scar tissue at this point, or that you're going back in because of whatever, it's been a long time. You don't. You would prefer to do it that way. Yeah, I mean, really, honestly, just going back to how we started, we tailor everything to the needs of the patient. We don't want to do more. We want to keep everything minimally invasive for what the needs of the patient are. Um, that's that's my philosophy. I, I like to be a minimalist in the operating room and a maximalist in the office. Uh, in other words, we want to do as much as we can in the office, uh, counseling the patient, getting them prepped, um, and uh, making sure their expectations are just right for providing then minimally invasive procedures for quicker recovery. So on that note, I'm going to steal that line, by the way, minimalist, in the, uh, except I'm not in the OR, but maximalist <laughs> in the office I can take. Perfect. All right, guys. So if you want to schedule an appointment with Dr. Freeman, you can go on to University of Pennsylvania's website, right? And you can schedule with him. And DrOrenFreeman.com. Oh, DrOrenFreeman.com. And I believe your office, other office is in Malvern, right? Uh, yep, Radner. Radner. This next to Rat Malvern, yep. All right, guys. I get them all confused. So you don't have to go down to Penn to see him. That's really my point because I get a lot of that question. Um, we have about 30 seconds, so on that, I'm going to say go to mydrlurie.com, M-Y-D-R-L-O-R-I.com. I do have a lot of the topical products that you can do and use. I do have a growth factor cream as well that you can purchase on my website. And um, let's see, radio frequency with microneedling, let's do it. Let's do lots of smooth threads, and let's get our next type. That's really what I'm about. And uh, this will all be posted on our um, website as well as on all the social media um platforms, as well as the podcast channels. All right, Dr. Freeman. Awesome. Thank you. It's great to be with you again.
over and out and we'll get them back. Don't worry, guys. I got some requests. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Anti-Aging Unraveled. Be sure to join Dr. Lori Gerber again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week and keep you aging gracefully.